The history of the United States from the beginning to now, from 1492 and Christopher Columbus down to 2016 and Donald Trump, that big story is told in Jill Lepore's big new book. It's called These Truths. Jill Lepore is a professor of history at Harvard. She's also a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her last book was a bestseller, The Secret History of Wonder Woman. We reached her today at Harvard. Jill Lepore, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, your new 900-page History of America ends with Donald Trump. This is a story with an ending, and it's not a happy one. When you were writing this book, what did you think the last chapter would be about? Where did you think the story would end? When I set about to write the book, which was a few years ago, I initially thought I'd end it in 2009, actually on Inauguration Day in 2009 with the inauguration of Barack Obama. It's a great ending. It's very cinematic. It has all kinds of drama to it. It hits a lot of themes in American history, the struggle over equality, the long uh, fight for racial justice in the United States. It's a it's a moment of political celebration. Uh, there were all kinds of great reasons to end on Inauguration Day 2009, one of which was that it was comfortably in the past. You know, historians don't generally like to write about the present or the near present because we have insufficient vantage on it. I, it just never occurred to me that I would want to go all the way up to the 2016 election, not really because of who was running, but just because it was too recent of, of an election to try to make sense of. But I was about halfway through writing the book. I was around the Civil War era when Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in November of 2016. And then I realized, I mean, you know, pretty much immediately that I would need to add, I need to adjust my ending. That seemed like a dereliction of duty as an intellectual to not attempt to attempt to wrestle with it, in the, even in the qualified terms in which I did attempt to wrestle with it. The history that ends with the election of our first black president is very different from the history that ends with Donald Trump, uh, or or is it? Did you revise? Did you take out some Martin Luther King and add more George Wallace after Trump got elected? No, I didn't. I think what happens, though, is the book reads a little bit differently. Like, maybe the readers are, maybe the words of George Wallace leap out on the page, and the words of, of, of Martin Luther King maybe don't so much, or they don't seem to be foreshadowing. You remember, it was a close election, and Donald Trump uh, didn't win the popular vote. It certainly could have gone another way. So it doesn't It doesn't actually represent the upending that I think the panic about the election elicited. It is a completely different political direction for the country to go, and there's just no two ways about that. But it is the same country that elected both of those people. American historians now are supposed to be able to answer the question, how bad is Donald Trump compared to all the rest? Is he really the worst? How badly have presidents behaved in the past? We need to have some sense of what is politics as as usual, historically speaking. This is a question that you've looked into. I was sort of fascinated recently, this is long after I finished writing this book, to discover that the Watergate Commission had actually invited the Yale, great Yale historian C. Van Woodward in 1974 to compile a report for the purpose of the Watergate Commission that tried to answer the question, with actual proper historical method, has any president done the kinds of things that Nixon stands accused of having done? And the reason that they wanted that report was 
there are plenty of Republicans on the, the, the Watergate Judiciary Committee, who, the Judiciary Committee that was conducting the inquiry, that kept saying, you know what, you know, it's, it's true a lot of crap has come out about Nixon, but, you know, it's, probably every president did this kind of stuff, and we just don't don't know about it, you know. And it's, I think this might just be politics as usual, How, you know. And the Democrats who were interested in pursuing impeachment wanted to answer that objection, but they, they thought that they would find evidence to support their contention that this wasn't politics as usual. In any case, Woodward, a public-minded historian of the sort that there really aren't very many anymore, given that he had a great deal of academic authority, whereas at the moment now, a lot of the people who are in, appear in public as historians are not people of great academic authority. Woodward was of a different kind of a different kind of guy. He got together some colleagues and they got together their graduate students and they in a whirlwind summer there are great stories told about the work of doing this. I have to compile a report on every single American president. It was basically a litany of presidential misdeeds and how they were handled. And uh, they got their report in, but by that time, Nixon had all but resigned and then shortly after resigned. And so the, the report had no impact whatsoever on the proceedings and very quickly went out of print. But it was um, really fun to go read it. It's actually fascinating reading. It's a great report. It's really interesting. But I tracked down of the historians who had worked on the project. I think I talked to, in the end, I talked to everybody who's still alive. Wow. And I asked them, you know, to compare what they had learned about the previous presidential administrations and the the low watermark that Nixon represented, which was Woodward's final conclusion in the introduction that he wrote to the report. You know, he said, like, there's been a lot of misdeeds, a lot of corruption, there's a lot of graft, a lot of lying, uh, there's a a lot of chicanery, but of the specific kinds of abdication of the Constitution that Nixon's sins represented, Woodward, you know, had many, a long list of ways in which these things were unprecedented. But, of the historians that I, that I spoke to, you know, wanted to talk about Trump, uh, I guess there, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, has, you know, has any president been as bad as Trump? I mean, I, I, they had strong words about about Trump, an unprecedented nature of what's sort of strangely, not just what Trump stands accused of, much of which, you know, are really mere accusations, allegations of collusion with the Russians, for instance. But those sort of public defilement of democratic institutions and foundational American values, so less kind of constitutional violations than this kind of larger scope of, you know, debasement really is 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 the term that comes to mind in thinking about things that specific historians said to me. Your title is These Truths, and, and of course, truth itself has become a political issue in the age of Trump. You have an index in- entry that reads truth, comma, nature of, that might be a first in the history of the United States. Um, How do we know what's true? Benjamin Franklin thought the most important truths were self-evident. So uh, let facts be submitted to a candid world, the way Jefferson put it. But in your book, you show that the nature of truth, facts, knowledge, experience, became a political issue long before Donald Trump yeah, absolutely. And my emphasis there, and it is a running theme throughout the book, really comes from my longstanding interest in evidence as a historian and as a journalist. I've The asymmetry of the historical record, the complications of evidentiary debates has been the centerpiece of my work as a scholar, really, and as a teacher. I teach a course at the law school called The History of Evidence that you know begins with the emergence of trial by jury 
in the 13th century in the abolition of trial by ordeal and thinks about how matters of fact enter the law and the history of the language of fact. So this is something that I've thought about for a long time and, and has, again, really been at the center of my work as a, as a scholar. The point I try to make in the framing of this issue as fundamental to any encounter with American history is to remind readers what I think most people know if they pause for a minute and ponder it, that the nation is founded not just on the idea of equality or on, you know, the three truths that are Jefferson's these truths, uh, the political, political equality, natural rights, and the sovereignty of the people, but on the necessity of inquiry, that the republic is, and is certainly understood by its framers and founders, an enlightenment experiment. It is an empirical experiment designed to uh, be studied, that it is the so, so it is the consequence and the product of the study of the past that people drafted the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, studied ancient republics and other forms of government, monarchies and aristocracies, and came from, away from that study of what they considered to be the record of all past experiments with a plan for conducting a new experiment. And that empiricism actually makes a lot of demands of the citizens of the United States. We are actually supposed to ourselves be constantly engaged in the study of history and a scrutiny of the experiment to actually refine it and make sure that things are still going well, or maybe it's time for a revision to the experiment. That is part of what it means to be a citizen of a republic, this republic in particular. I wanted to ask about Andrew Sullivan's review of your book in the New York Times he said he he concluded from your book that, quote, the Civil War would never end, merely wax and wane, and its toll on the human spirit and the black body was matched only by its evil, from Jackson's massacre of Native Americans to the Southern labor camps to the full embrace of torture in the Bush-Cheney administration is a single consistent and evil line. Close quote, Andrew Sullivan. I wonder if you have any comment on that. I think that's the first I've heard that. I, I just as a rule, don't read reviews. A lot of people have written to me about Sullivan's review, so I'm, I'm awfully familiar with it. I don't know that I know that passage, and I, of course, can't be accountable for what someone says right. <laughs> about my work. Right. Um, it's a, that, is a, that is a powerful statement. I think to some degree that is... Yeah, Sullivan's a tremendously talented writer, and I think to some degree that is a claim of his own. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about how the work of the historian is not the same as the work of a moralist. I think there's a lot of room for moralism in our political rhetoric and and, and even in our political journalism, and, and I think Sullivan isn't in any ways in the best tradition of that, and I, I talk a lot about actually that vein of American political journalism as a really important part of how the American Republic works and the check that, that journalists play on, on government overreach and, and on corporations as well. I myself don't use the language of evil in that regard. I use the language of tragedy and horror, uh, which is a slightly different language than what, what Sullivan is em- employing there. Whether, whether the way that I construct my story, is, which is the way that I see American history playing out, offers sources of continuity where tragedies come back and back and back. I I think that's completely fairly stated. Jill Lepore's new book is These Truths. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's beautifully written. Jill, thanks so much for talking with us today. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It was a lot of fun.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.